So I've never been um, really employed in the construction industry other than like a gopher as a, when I was a younger kid, you know, um, working on different construction sites, hauling away garbage, doing little jobs. Uh, one time they let me put some siding up and when I was 18 and um, that was a failure. So that was the end of that job for me. But I did learn a lot over the years, um, as just working with my dad and doing projects. Um, when I was working with the Forest Service on a facility we were living at during the summers, but when I started doing um, youth ministry in Marysville, we took some mission teams down to uh, Costa Rica and a couple different places in Mexico to work with uh, youth with the mission, YWAM, to do some house construction as part of their programs. And these, you know, when I say houses, um, think uh, one room of your house and you'll have it about right. I mean, they were about 20 by 20 and pretty small. We did build one larger home for a pastor one time. But for the most part, they were just these um, squares of cement when we got there. And then we had, they had a plan to build it in three days. So that gives you an idea of how complicated these were. But what we were replacing was often either a cardboard or a wood shack in the mud. So it was a significant upgrade from what they had. And it was part of um, ministry at YWAM in these um, communities. But when I remember when we first started doing this, we get to the construction site the first day, and I kind of shifted into my management mode. I mean, I've got this team I brought down there to do this work. We're coordinating, of course, and working alongside the locals who have experience in this. And we're trying to get going, and I'd always bring at least one or two um, actual contractors, or people with construction skills from the United States to help us out. And I remember being so frustrated that when we get ready to go, they would, they would do this, the pouring of the concrete slab before we got there, so we didn't have to wait for that process and so it would be there. And they would always spend all of this time measuring out the slab and checking the level of the slab. And I remember sometimes we would take a chalk line and mark it off and we'd be chipping off pieces and stuff. And I'm just like, man, can't we just get going on this house? Why are we spending so much time doing this? And I'm not a real fast learner sometimes. I think it took me about three or four of these houses. We, I think, I don't know how many I've built over the years, but a lot more than that. Before I finally figured out that an hour or two spent on the foundation and getting that square and level and right meant saved hours of labor later as you're trying to get a wall to be level or getting screws to go into the right place or hanging drywall or any of the things that came later. And I found out that the foundations are so important. They're so critical. When I was a kid, I um, built forts in my backyard. And our process for doing this was we had a, a lava rock outcropping. This was in Bend, Oregon, Central Oregon. If you've, ever, if you've ever been in that region, maybe you've seen these. It's unlike anything we have here. It's this jagged lava rock, and it forms, you know, you'll have a hill, and this rock will be sticking out all over. And so our process of building forts was to build a, um, take the scrap wood we had laying around our house, which we always had a lot, make kind of a platform, and then we just kind of set it down. And then we try to like stick some rocks and stuff under it to kind of keep it level and kind of make it work. I have no idea how those things stood because sometimes they were two stories high. And I think in the back, I'm like, what was my dad thinking? Let us build these things, right? They were crazy, but when we got done, I just remember they always looked a little bit like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, right? They were never square. I had no understanding of the importance of foundations. When it comes to our faith and it comes to um, our Christian life, or really anything in life, it's good for us to think back on the question of what we are standing on. 
what our foundation is. Of course, Jesus knew this was important. He told the, the famous story that about the uh, man who, the parable, about the man who built his house on the sand. And then the storm comes, the rains come, the floods come, and his house gets knocked down. I sang that song when I was a kid. I don't think our kids learn it anymore. That's too bad. Anyone else learn that song? Wise man built his house upon the rock. Wise man built it. Yeah. So I learned that song as a kid. And so, of course, the wise man built his house on the rock. So when the rains come, the storms come, it doesn't get knocked over. And this is how it is for us in life. And this is how it is for us in our faith. So I want to take some time to talk about some real foundational concepts and foundational issues in our faith. So let me give you a, a little bit of a roadmap of where we're going. I like to do in my preaching a, uh, a series in a gospel, and then do a series in the Old Testament, and then do a series from a New Testament book. And in between those, I like to take little four to six week breaks to focus on some things that are um, foundational, and are also things that are important for us as we attempt to live out life as a missional church, as a church that's looking beyond just the Sunday morning gathering. And then there's other things in between, like um, Advent series at times. And this year, we don't always do this, but this year we're going to be doing a series for Lent. So if that's not something that's familiar to you, we'll be talking about Lent as we get close to Ash Wednesday, which is coming up here in a, a few weeks. Oh, it's, I can remember this year because it happens to be Valentine's Day. It's February 14th. Is Ash Wednesday. That's the beginning of Lent. So we'll have a, a very informal service here on that Wednesday night for those who want to come and participate in that. And that marks the beginning of a season in the church called Lent as we're moving towards Easter. 40 days, not counting Sundays, moving towards Easter. So we're going to do a series for Lent where we look at um, seven of the last um, words of Jesus from the cross. So that's going to be coming up. And then after that, we're going to be moving into the Old Testament book of Jonah, which I've never preached on. I love Jonah, so I'm looking forward to doing that. So that's a little bit of a roadmap of where we're going. But for this series... We're going to be talking about foundational issues, specifically, who is God? What has God done? Who are we? And then what should we do? And it's very important that we get it in that order, because if we don't get it in that order, we're going to get it wrong. If we start with the question, what should we be doing or what should I do? And we don't know who we are. And we don't understand what God has done for us and in us. And we don't understand who God is. Then we're not going to understand our purpose. And what we need to be doing. And so often, as I know I have this tendency, I just want to get things done. But it's important for us to step back and ask if we really understand what we should be doing. So that's what this series is about. And I want to introduce us to this concept and begin thinking about this by looking at a story in John's Gospel. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to John 20 or on your phone or iPad or whatever you have there. We're going to be reading from John 20, verse 19. Uh, I should introduce this, of course. This is, in John's Gospel, this is after Jesus crucifixion and after he has been laid in the tomb and after he's risen but not appeared to the disciples yet when it was evening on that day being Sunday the first day of the week and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews Jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you 
After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we do ask, as always, for your insight, your inspiration, your wisdom as we study your scripture. We pray that we would hear your voice and your voice alone. And if there is anything in us, God, that we need to do work on this morning and you're speaking to us and you're prompting us, may we have the courage to respond to you. We give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned, it's, it's very important for us to have a foundation in our faith. And these disciples in this story, they know that their Lord has been killed. They know that Jesus has been buried, but they don't yet believe the reports from Mary and perhaps from John this, that uh, Jesus is risen from the dead. They don't have any idea what they should do. They've been following Jesus for three years. He's been guiding them and leading them, and now he's not there. And so what do we find them doing? Find them sitting in a locked room. Have you ever had a time when you had no idea what you should do? And I'm not talking just like out, out of boredom. We all have those moments. Or, or, you know, should I go to Mexican or Chinese tonight? I'm talking about bigger picture, like when you just had a time in your life and you didn't know what direction you should be going in, what your life should be like. I, uh, I've certainly had moments in my life like that. And I still have moments in my life like that, not questioning whether I should be in ministry, but questioning where God is leading me and what direction I should be going. I think one of the pro- most profound moments in my life that I will never forget was um, right before I came to serve at the, the first church I served at in Marysville, Mountain View. Because I had been working in summers as I worked my way through college and studying um, theology and thinking I was going to go into ministry. I'd been working as a wildland firefighter for the Forest Service. So that job basically meant that during the summer months, I was working all the time. I would get a, few, a couple days off after 21 days on, 
was a lot of work, and um, it was a way for me to make money for school, and I loved it, and I, even though it was hard. But that was my life. That was all-consuming. And so then I would go from that to um, August in, in school at Whitworth University, where I would start training camp for football. And it was what we called Hell Week. It was actually a couple of weeks of hell. Uh, three practices a day and grueling physical activity. And so then I would start school, but I would have football every practice every day, games on weekends. And that would last me through, of course, about November. And then I would get to focus on my studies a little bit more. Although I always got better grades through football. That was interesting. I don't know how that worked. But then I would get to focus on my grades a little bit more. But then we would start our winter training program. And then I would go right from that immediately to a couple days later back in working for Forest, the Forest Service. This was um, four years of schooling and then a year after school. This was my life. And so I remember, and I'm not going to tell you this story today, but I knew God was calling me to ministry. I had accepted a position at Mountain Presbyterian Church in Marysville, a full-time position as a youth pastor. I had not done any of that kind of work other than volunteer before. And so I was changing. So I gave my notice to the Forest Service, and I said, I'm going to give you my two-week notice. I'm going to leave. This was back in May. And then we were on this hillside doing some work, cutting some trees. And I remember my boss driving up in his truck, and I thought, oh, this is, this is a guy who doesn't go in the field very often. So this is either really good or really bad. I'm not sure which. And he gets out, and he was so excited. Like, okay, this is really good. And he said something that would never, never happen in, in the decades that he'd been you know, doing this work. He said, there's major fires in Canada, and they're sending us. Now, this is a U.S. government resource going to Canada, so you can imagine how bad it was. And we're like, we were ex- so excited because this is normally time of year we don't get a lot of work in the fires. And so, and, and I was like, oh man, I just gave my two weeks notice. And when we get deployed, it's for 21 days minimum. And then they can give you a day off on site and then go another 21 days. But usually they bring us back home. And so I'm doing the math. I'm like, 21 days. Okay, I could, I could actually go and come back and have a day to pack up my house with my wife and get turned around and drive up to Marysville. Like, I could make this work. So I'm talking to my boss. He's like, sorry, you're giving your two weeks notice. I'm like, oh, I really want to go. I mean, please, we can make this work. You need people to go. And he's like, oh, okay. You know. So we go up there. And sure enough... We're there for 21 days, and it's, um, it's amazing. It's, it's a lot of work. It's actually really boring at times. And once we get towards the end of the fire, we're just 12 hours walking through the woods and looking for smoke that's not there anymore. But it's, we're in the outdoors. We're doing physical labor. I'm, I'm with these guys who are they're salt-to-the-life kind of guys, I mean, not and gals. And um, it's just that kind of work. And then I come home. I pack up my house. My wife and I get to you already. We drive up to Marysville. <clears throat> we put everything in storage. The next day I start work. I go into this church building that I've only visited once before. And the staff says, hey, we're leaving for summer vacation. The church is yours. And they put me inside my office, which is a Sunday school classroom in a 1960s era church. And I'm sitting there in dead silence going, what am I going to do? I mean... I had been used to people giving me orders. I have been used to, you know, you run over here, you dig over here, you cut down that tree, you, you put a fire line in over here, and all of a sudden I'm sitting in this office, I don't know the people, I don't know the church, all, the only activity I'm getting are these phone calls, and I'm worthless on the phone. Because I don't know the people calling and I can't answer any of their questions other than when the service time is, and everybody knows when the service time is. So I'm totally worthless. And it was one of those moments of life, my life where I'm just going, was this God's voice? 
I mean, what am I supposed to do here? I had no clear idea of who I was in that church. I had no idea of who the church was. I had no idea of who the kids were I was going to be ministering to. And I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do. This is where the early disciples are, except more extreme, post-resurrection of Jesus. They know Jesus has been crucified. They, they hear the reports that he's been raised from the dead. But no one has believed yet that it's really him. And they don't know what they should do. What are some of their options? Let's just brainstorm for a moment. I'd like to actually hear some of your ideas. If you're one of those disciples, what do you think some of their options are as to what to do after Jesus' death? Now, they don't know he's been raised from the dead yet. Go back to Okay, go back to the previous job, and some of them do. Where the gospel says they go back to fishing, some of them. Okay, what else could they do? Who's going to take his place? Who's the next person? Okay, so maybe appoint a new leader or look for a new rabbi. Good. What else might they do? <clears throat> yeah. Okay, they could teach other people <clears throat> the things that Jesus has taught them. Right. The danger, of course, in teaching right then for them is that Jesus was teaching these things and they just killed him for it. So now they're sitting inside a room and they're afraid, it says. They're afraid of the Jews. They're afraid of those who killed Jesus. They're afraid of what's going to happen. One thing he didn't mention is they could have done a what our movies would have them do. You know, I mean, what about revenge? I mean, come on. Rebellion, like some people wanted Jesus to be that kind of leader. Some people want the disciples to be that kind of a leader. You know, if he's really the Messiah, let's get these Romans out of here. This could be the catalyst to fight, right? That's an option. I'm sure they had a lot of options in front of them, but none of them would have been right. <clears throat> if they had heard first so that they understood completely who God was, what God had done for them, and who they were and what they were supposed to do. And so just as an intro to this these, we're going to be looking at those questions the next few weeks as intro to this this morning. I want to see how we see this in this text and how this works itself out. First of all, who is God? Jesus walks into that room. One time the door is locked. He's risen from the dead. And he speaks to them and he says, you notice three different times in this text, he says, peace be with you. I can't imagine what those words would have felt like and would have sounded like to these disciples because inside, I'm sure they are just a storm of emotions right now. I mean, if for nothing else, their beloved friend and teacher has just been tortured and killed. And now their lives are in danger. <clears throat> but I also think when Jesus walked in there and said those words, that they would have felt and been reminded of Jesus calming the storms <clears throat> when they said, excuse me, <clears throat> when they said, uh, who is this that can even speak to the waves and the wind and make peace, right? And Jesus says, peace be with you. Three different times. I think of God calming the chaos at creation. Speaking peace into that chaos and creating order. And I believe this is the first moment probably for many of them when they understand that God is among them. That Jesus is God in the flesh. Who is God? He, 
He's this one who came and lived among us. He's this one who taught us. He's this one who healed. He's this one who blessed. He's this one who gave up his life, although they don't fully understand it yet. They're full, they're unraveling. He's the one who did all of this for us, and he, he's the one who rose again. Death didn't have the final word. Who's ever done that? So, for the first time, they're understanding what we all understand: who is God? Yes, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we see that here. We see the Father has sent the Son. The Son has given up his life. He's risen from the dead. And now the Son in this story, did you notice, he breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is God. What has God done? Well, obviously, God has become incarnate. He's taken on flesh. He's lived among them. He's moved into the neighborhood, as one translation of John's gospel says. And he died. He allowed himself to be killed. And so he comes to the disciples and he says, this is, I'm not a ghost. This isn't an illusion here. Touch the nail holes in my hands to Thomas, right? Go ahead, put your fingers in my side if you don't believe. What God has done is he has sent Jesus to die in our place and to conquer death so that there can be new life for anyone who believes in him. This is what God has done. And so who are we? Well, these 12 disciples, uh, the 11 in this case, Judas is not there. These disciples are undoubtedly one of those emotions that they're probably churning within them is the emotion of guilt. Some of them said, we will die for you if that's what it takes. And then what happened? When Jesus was arrested, they all ran. Peter got the closest to the others. I mean, he, he followed for a while, but then he denied his Lord when he was pressed. Aren't you one of his disciples? No, I'm not. He, he curses to make sure they understand he's a sailor. No, I'm not one of his disciples. They've all denied him. They've all run away from him. And so he's killed. He's tortured. He's killed. They did nothing. Imagine one of those emotions that's just roiling in them is guilt. And then Jesus comes among them and he says, peace. And then he speaks to them in this kind of language. My God and your God. My Father and your Father. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He is offering them the forgiveness that they need. He says, not only are you forgiven, but despite what you have done, your God loves you. In fact, your family, my father is your father. So who are we? Or in this case, they're saying, you know, they're they're, they're asking the question, who are we? Jesus is saying, you are forgiven. And you are part of God's family. And even doubting Thomas. Oh, I am so grateful for doubting Thomas. I love it that doubting Thomas is in there. And the poor guy gets the name Doubting. He should just be called Thomas. But we call him Doubting Thomas. But you know, I mean, we all have doubts. And then Thomas saw all these miracles that Jesus did. In fact, it's not just Thomas. When Jesus ascends to heaven, it says that the disciples fell at his feet and they worshipped him. But some doubted. 
And I'm going, wow, if they can see everything that Jesus did, see all those miracles, see him put to death, see him rise again, and see him ascending to heaven and still have doubts, then God can handle my doubts. It's okay. In fact, I have real serious concerns whenever I meet a Christian who says, I have no doubts. Because I wonder if they've actually wrestled with their faith at all. So I'm encouraged that despite all this, the disciples have doubts. Thomas still has doubts. He wants to touch Jesus. And do you see Jesus pronounce a blessing on us in there? It's in there. He says, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who've never seen and believe. Isn't that cool? But that's in the text. He's talking about us. So who are we? Who are they? They're forgiven, their children, their family. So now they can ask the question, what should we do? See, now they know the answer to those questions. God, he's the creator of God, and he calms the storms. He does all that work, and he sent the son for us. And what has God done? The son has taken on flesh, and he's given his life, and he's conquered death so that we could be Forgiven, And who are we? We are the ones who have been forgiven. We've been made children of God. We're adopted into his family. Now we know the answer to those questions. So now they can ask the question, what are they to do? <clears throat> Jesus says, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. So if you want to look at the birth of the church, and this is, there's been, a, I think, a somewhat healthy movement. People saying, we want to get back to that. That kernel of purity that was a New Testament church. And of course, as a pastor, I always like to say, well, which messed up New Testament church do you want to be? Let's look at the scriptures and see the letters Paul wrote. Because they were all written in New Testament churches. And almost everyone is writing because they've got major problems. <clears throat> so we got to be careful not to make them some ideal that doesn't really exist. If we want to look at that pure kernel of what the church is in the very beginning, it's this. Jesus saying, look at what I've done. <clears throat> I've forgiven you, and now I'm sending you. That sent aspect of the church is so essential. If we forget that we are sent by God to the places where we live, we forget that we're sent to this community, to this neighborhood, then we will not understand fully what we're supposed to do. We'll think that what we're supposed to do is gather in this place and worship, which is important, don't get me wrong. But that's not what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to worship him in bringing his kingdom out in the world we live in every day of our lives, not just on Sunday. So what are we to do? Jesus will later tell them that they need to go out and they need to preach, they need to teach, they need to baptize, they need to heal. They're going to change the world in the name of Jesus. These men, these broken men hiding in this locked room. Jesus uses them in this way. Do you notice that Jesus doesn't say, go out and build a church building? Go build a new place for people to worship because that temple's coming down. He already told them that was going to happen. He doesn't say that. He sends them. They're the church. That's what they're supposed to do. And the last question we're going to be looking at in this series is how do we do it? So how do you take 11 men who are hiding in a locked room, scared for their lives, who have just abandoned their Lord? How do you take those 11 men and build God's kingdom in the world? <laughs> They're going to need more than they have. 
And so Jesus breathes on them, and he gives them the Holy Spirit. And of course, we see that worked out in Acts when we get to Pentecost, when they're gathered in the upper room, these 11 and many more. And the Holy Spirit comes like tongues of fire upon them. And these men who are hiding in this locker room, they walk out on the streets because people are hearing them speaking in these languages. And they stand up and they tell them about Jesus. And they proclaim that he was the Messiah and the Lord. And that the rulers who right now in that city want to arrest them, they killed their Lord and Messiah. And thousands of people believe. They needed the Holy Spirit, and we need the Holy Spirit. That's the only way we do it. That's how we do it. Thailand's church, um, and by the way, when we sang that song earlier, we believe in the Holy Church, and most of the capital C church. We don't believe that Thailand's church is the only true church, or the Presbyterian Church USA is the only true denomination, or the Protestant church is the only true Christians in the world. We believe that God's church is huge. Yes, we have differences. Yes, we disagree. And there are important disagreements. We don't need to to hide from those or be ashamed from those. But we need to understand that this particular expression of God's church that we believe we're called to here at Tidelands Church, that we want to be a church that's built on the understanding that we are called by God and we are sent to the places where we live, where we work, and where we play. We are not called and sent to have a thousand meetings in this building every week. We are sent to the people that are in your lives who need to know Jesus Christ. And we're still figuring out how we do this and how we can be a church that equips all of us to be God's priests. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. To do God's work in the places they're at. We, we're trying out missional communities. This is the way, one of the ways we do this. We would love to have any of you come join us. We only have two really up and running right now. We want to see this community filled with these. And that every missional community would be a smaller expression of people who are gathering together as family. And who are asking, what does the gospel and God's love look like to a particular group of people in this community? It might be around a school, it might be around a neighborhood, it might be around um, an age of people, it might be around, um, you know, some need that's out there. It could be a lot of different things, but we're trying this model to be more intentional about living as family, living out our life as servants, and being missionaries in the places God has sent us. There's many ways to do this. This is the one that we're trying. The important thing is that when we understand and believe who God is, what God has done for us and who we are in Christ, then we're all going to want more than just a Sunday morning event for our faith. Because we'll understand how huge it is. It's all of life, this discipleship and following Jesus. This is what we're called to. So our being precedes our doing or who we are comes before what we do. We get those mixed up, and we're going to get it wrong. If we try to define who we are by what we do, you know, culture says the last question, you know, what do you do for work? And immediately we're judging each other. People are judging, right? We all have experienced this on some level because we do. We tend to define people by what they do, but that's not the way God's economy works. He declares who we are, and then what we do comes out of that. So no matter what job you might get paid doing, 
God says, you're a paid missionary. You're a paid full-time missionary. Your employer doesn't know they're paying you to do that, but they are. It says who you are, our being, precedes our doing. And as we go through these five questions, for those of you who want to hang something bigger on this, I'll have this printed out for you next week, or at least up on the screen. When we say who is God, what we're doing is we're talking about theology, the study of God. When we say what has God done, what we're talking about is primarily Christology, talking about Jesus Christ. When we say who are we, we're talking about ecclesiology. This is a fancy word that comes from ecclesia, the Greek word for church. Who are we? We're talking about the church. And when we say what are we to do, we're talking about missiology, or the study of missions or going out. We often get this backwards. Churches think that who they are is, um, you know, well, they'll say we're missionaries, which is good. But they think that what we do is church. No, this isn't church. You are the church. Corporately, we are the church. And what we do is mission, is God's mission. And how do we do it is what theologians call pneumatology, which comes from the the Greek word for spirit. This is the study of the Holy Spirit. That's how we do it. So those are the five things that we're going to be looking at as we go through the series. Um, This is just an introduction to that, but I hope you can see how this works and you can begin to reflect a little bit on who God says you are outside of how the world may want to define you. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your son. And we're so grateful that your son calls and uses broken, doubting, at times fearful people. Because we see that in ourselves at times too. God, we want to hear your voice. We want to live out our calling. But we need your spirit, and we need courage to do it. God, I just ask that as we we are thinking about these things for the next few weeks, that you would help us to return to those things that we know to be true, that we can firmly plant our feet and build from. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.